Hopefully by now you know that in 2016 our theme is strong and courageous. That theme is based off a verse in Joshua chapter 1 verse 9, although certainly repeated many times throughout the scriptures where God reminds his people over and over and over again that there are lots of reasons to be afraid, lots of reasons to be fearful. Fear is one of the most crippling things toward people of faith. But he reminds them again and again, be strong and courageous. For I am with you wherever you go. Now, we have covered a couple of smaller series. We are in the middle of our series called Glorious Day. Oh, and if you could turn that sound up just a little bit. You know, you can certainly see parents in their children, can't you? And you got two miniature Ben's there and one Kelly trying to hold it all together. They are doing uh, participating in uh, the Northside 90-Day Bible Reading Program, which has been a part of our series of, of making us people of faith. Helping build up our faith to be stronger and more courageous people by, by reading through the New Testament in 90 days. Today we are on day 64, which means we're 71% done with the Northside 90-day Bible reading program. And as I always do, if you haven't started yet, today would be a wonderful day to just jump in. There's schedules in the foyer. You can get one of the Northside 90-day bracelets to remind you, and uh, hopefully you can be a part of that. But thank you so many of you who are posting pictures and videos and responses to the things that you're reading in God's Word. That's a marvelous, wonderful thing, and you can post, uh, follow us there on social media as well. Our series of Glorious Day is really talking about what Paul called first importance. And last week we talked about the idea of living he loved me, the, the life of Christ, which is such a, a thing that is so common in the scripture. And yet, because it's so common, it can become commonplace. We know that though he is commonly referred to in scripture, his life was not an ordinary life, but an extraordinary life. We talked about how that, that thread started in, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and, and was strung all the way through the prophets and the prophecies and the people of God, all the way winding back and forth through scripture, continuing even into the church today. And it will continue. Northside will be a different place a hundred years from now, and a different people, and, and who they are now depends a great deal on who we decide to be today. Well, so I'm excited to talk to you about the second part of this message, uh, dying, he saved me. Now, the cross is, of course, the instrument of Jesus' death, and we all recognize the cross as a symbol of faith. It's something that is commonly seen within church buildings and church classrooms. Uh, we have one in the, in the multipurpose room uh, that they use for CR on Thursdays. And this one that the boys are bringing down is from the teen room. This cross was used, go ahead, set it right there in the center, guys. And it was used there at camp uh, in Golden, Colorado. We used a symbol like this to represent a lot of things. It's, it's so common that it becomes dangerous. See, for you and I, this represents faith and hope 
It represents something deeper. 2,000 years ago, it didn't represent those things. 2,000 years ago, this meant only one thing. Death. Shame. Mockery. To see it was to say, there goes a criminal. There goes someone who did something horribly wrong. To see it was to understand a message in no uncertain terms from the government of Rome that you defy Caesar and this will be the result. Now, I'm afraid sometimes we think that, well, the cross, the, the, the cross that we know was the only time that happened in history. Just so far from, from true is that statement. It, the cross was a very common thing, certainly in Jesus' day. One Roman emperor crucified 2,000 men on a single day. The Roman emperor Titus in 70 AD put so many people as they invaded Jerusalem and took it over the city, put so many people on crosses that they ran out of wood to put them on and ran out of places to put the crosses that they did have. The cross was a common instrument. It just didn't represent what we see today. It represented death and shame and mockery and insult. The best thing I could do to, to give you a modern equivalent would be to, to, to bring an electric chair or a, hang, a, a hangman's noose. And those symbols, you and I understand, are symbols of death. They don't mean symbols of hope. They don't have anything to, to build up our faith. But that's what the cross was, you see. A first century Jew or even a first century Gentile saw that cross not as a message of hope. Some people even deny the message of the cross. Uh, they, they disavow it in a number of ways. They say, well, Jesus wasn't a real man who ever lived, and so he didn't even die. Some people say, well, Jesus was a good man, and, but he died a martyr's death on the cross, and he remains dead today, and his disciples hid the body, or something happened, and he's just a good moral teacher that we should follow. You need to understand those are lies. Those are false doctrine. The cross is a dangerous symbol. It's a dangerous thing because it can become too common, become too commonplace, not just for their world, but even for ours. Or as we look upon that symbol, we forget what happened there. We, we forget that God came down and he became like us and he put on skin and, and he experienced everything that we do. Scripture says that he even experienced temptation in every way, just as we do. Philippians 2 says he, he, he humbled himself even to death. God had never died. But when he became the incarnate Jesus, he subjected himself to death. And not just any death. See, I've been to a lot of funerals. And I'll probably go to more as I get older. And I've been to a lot of really sad funerals. But you've never been to a funeral like this. You've never been to a funeral where they mocked the one who was dying. Where they cursed the one who was dying. Where they did everything they did to make that death as cruel and as agonizing as possible. You've never been to a funeral like that. And neither have I. That day forever changed all the other days that would be to come. So please don't look at a symbol like this. And become so, just, just almost mentally check out. Because, oh, I know, it's about the death of Jesus and how great it was and yada, yada, yada. 
Oh, God, forgive us. God, forgive us if we don't if we miss the meaning of this message that was not just to them, not just to all the human history that has preceded us, not just to us today, but to the whole of human history for a for the whole human timeline that God loves us and is willing to die for us and is willing to put himself on a cross that we might know the hope of heaven. It's a beautiful message, and it's what I want to talk about this morning. But I need to ask you to, to, to re-engage your brain and stop just, just writing it off just because you've seen this symbol so many times before. Let's go back to the pages of Scripture and realize what the cross is all about. Gentlemen, thank you. The cross was, Jesus' death was a planned punishment. We said last week that it was not an accident. That God wasn't put in a corner, that he wasn't put between a rock and a hard place where he had to choose. All the way from Genesis chapter 3, Scripture even tells us, hints at the idea that, that even before creation, God had Christ in mind. That, that he wanted him, that he had a plan for him, and that it was his will to crush him and cause him to suffer. May we never become complacent about that punishment. Some people ask, well, why did God have to do that? Couldn't God have just told Adam and Eve, well, I, I, I love you, so I forgive you. I'm your father, so come here. Just, just let me hug you and everything will be all right. I mean, God could have done that, couldn't he have? Well, I suppose God could have done that. But you see, if God had done that. If God had just overlooked their sin and all the sin of human history throughout all time and just said, it'll be okay, just come on home. If God had ignored that, it would make God unjust. Now, that doesn't seem like a big deal unless you've had something really bad happen to you and you've had to go to court. And you go before a judge or a jury and you make your case and you're asking the judge or the jury for justice. Now, imagine for just a moment a very serious situation, something like maybe a family member of yours was tragically killed in a drunk driving accident. And this drunk driver got behind the wheel and barreled down in a couple of tons of metal and tragically killed someone who you love very much. He's convicted. He's guilty. You go to court. There he sits in the defendant's chair. There you sit on the plaintiff's side, the state bringing the case. They, they present all the evidence. They, they, they show it clearly that he was there, that he did it, he, but he's dead to rights. He, he ought to receive the maximum punishment under the law. And the judge says, well, you know, all that evidence is true, and, and it's, it's very convicting, but I just don't have the heart to convict him. I love him. I'm sure he'll never do it again. And I know he's sorry. So I tell you what, I'm just going to let him go free. I'm just going to sign this. And here you go, hand that to the bailiff. He is free to go. Now, if you're on this side of that, you are angry. Because an injustice has been served. Now, that is a very pale comparison to what happens when we sin. When we sin, we violate God's most holy standard. And that very holy standard itself says, 
The one who sins is the one who will die. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. We deserve everything we get. Can't God just forgive us? Well, God could. But that would make him unjust. And if God's unjust, then God can't be holy. So, God has to be just. But that's a problem too. So, God planned a punishment that would satisfy both the requirement of justice and his heart of mercy. Turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 3 through 4, and read this. Romans chapter 8, verses 3 through 4. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law, that's justice, might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, or some versions say on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. For by his wounds you have been healed. He's quoting Isaiah there. He's, he's reminding us that what Jesus did on that cross was paying a price for our sin. Secondly, Jesus' death was the prophet's promise. From, from Adam to Jesus, from, from all the prophets that he sent, all the messages that they preached, warning against sin, convicting against unrighteousness, every single prophet of God, every single prophecy was talking, foretelling, foreshadowing the coming Lamb. If you turn to Genesis chapter 22, one of the very first places that this is foreshadowed, Genesis chapter 22, is the story of a father and a son. Now, the father's name was Abram. He was a very righteous man. Uh, in fact, we're told later that God credited his faith to him, his credited his righteousness to him. He was a good man, a godly man, and a God-fearing man. And he was very old, and he had no children. And God had promised him that he would bless not just the nation, but nations, the whole world would be blessed through his offspring. This old man who has no children. And then God fulfills his promise in a little boy named Isaac. And in Genesis chapter 22, God does the unthinkable. He says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and take him and sacrifice him. Now, I love all of you in here, and I pray for you daily. But I need to tell you something this morning. There's not a person in here I would give my son for. I cannot imagine any person being able to ask me to give my son and me responding with faithful obedience. And yet Abram, not understanding, not knowing, I'm sure full of questions, took his son, took the flint, the fire, and the wood, and up the mountain they went. And as his mind was swirling undoubtedly with questions and wonders and thoughts and whys, interrupting all of that was the voice of his son. Daddy, something's missing. You see, 
Isaac was a young man of understanding. He had seen his, undoubtedly seen his father make sacrifices many times. And he knew you had to have three things. You had to have the wood. You had to have the fire. But you had to have something to sacrifice. The boy put together that they were missing the third part of that. Where is the offering? Abraham, with his wisdom and with his heart of trust, simply said, chapter 22, verses 7 and 8, God himself, God himself, God himself will provide a lamb. In scriptures, the name for God who provides is Jehovah Jireh. Sometimes we misunderstand and we get this idea that that God is just some sort of eternal Santa Claus and he just gives us whatever we want whenever we need it. And sometimes he does. I'm not discounting that. But Jehovah Jireh is the God who provides, who would not spare his own son that you might know heaven. He loved you enough to take his son and not spare him as he did with Abram. But to let him go to the cross, to be insulted, to be to be whipped and scourged and and just almost filleted right open, beaten and, and insulted and deserted and mocked at the entire world, the entire world. God, forgive us. God, forgive us when we look at that cross and we forget the price that was paid. That was a deep, deep price. And not because he physically suffered. Understand, lots of people physically suffered. But this was the first time in all of eternity that the Father and the Son were separated. Not like you and I are because of virtue of our sin. But because of our sin, he was separated from the Father because he laid down his life. It was the planned punishment, but it was the prophet's promise. All the way from Abram, throughout all the prophets, even to the very life of Jesus, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 6. It's not going to be on your screen, but I really want to encourage you to turn there. Who has believed our message, Isaiah says, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we desire him. I don't think Jesus was a man that we would recognize if we could time travel back to the first century. He was a commoner. He had a common face. He didn't, didn't look special. He didn't act special. There was nothing noteworthy about him, the prophet Isaiah says. But this, this next verse was noteworthy. Verse 3, he was despised. And rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him stricken by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced, not for his transgressions. But for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. 
We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us turned to our own way. And what did God do? Did he respond by laying the iniquity on us? Did he cause by striking us down, by sending us to eternity in hell? No, he laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the planned punishment. It was the prophet's promise. And it was the perfect payment. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 is the story, not of Jesus' death, but of Jesus being anointed. Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. Now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, so he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. And she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So Jesus looked at him and said, Simon, let me tell you something. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him a 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. And so he canceled the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And he turned to the woman. He said, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman is from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume. She has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her sins have been forgiven because there are many For she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little, loves little. And then he looked at her and he said, your sins have been forgiven. You see, the cross had everything to do with justice, but it also had everything to do with debt. Now, you know me for any length of time. I'll probably talk to you about being debt-free and Dave Ramsey and all of that. But that's not the kind of debt I'm talking about. I'm talking about spiritual debt. The only way I can ex- give you an example is by using a physical principle. We're on tax season. So imagine that you filled out your taxes or an accountant has. And the, the accountant does all the paperwork and looks at the receipts and then finishes it all up pushes it across the desk for you to sign and says, the IRS has calculated that you owe them $1 billion. You say, $1 billion, that's quite a deal compared to what I owe. 
$1 billion. It might well be $10 trillion. I can't pay it. There's no way. I could work my entire life and, and take on two full-time jobs. I would never be able to pay that debt. The accountant says, well, I'm sorry. I mean, you've got to. If you don't understand that the, the, the IRS, the, they're worse than the KGB. I mean, they're going to come after you. They're going to they're going to garner your assets and your wages. They're going to take everything you have. Isn't there some sort of case? Isn't there some sort of plea bargain? Isn't there something I can do? He says, no. No, simply you owe this money. You say, well, what can I do? I can't do anything. There's no way I can pay this debt. Now. Now you understand this woman in Luke chapter 7. And she had lived her whole life understanding that she had a debt far too great for her to pay by herself. She couldn't do it. The problem with you and I is we usually have much, much smaller debts. And so we think, well, if I just, let's see here, I come to church and I put a dollar there and I do good things, there's a dollar. I got a small debt, it's covered. It's good. But you understand that the law says if you break one commandment, that you have a debt that you cannot pay. Some people used to talk about the cross and say, oh, if it only had been me, if only I had been up there on the cross. No, you can't even pay your own sin, let alone anyone else's. That's what the cross is all about. It's about the fact that you and I have a debt, no matter how great or how small, that we cannot pay on our own. It is impossible. And that Jesus, what he was doing on the cross, well, I tell you what, turn to Colossians chapter 2. Let, let's, let's look at what it says in Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. God made us alive together with him. This is verse 13 and 14. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, he set it aside, nailing it to the cross. You see, on the cross, Jesus paid your debt in full. Jesus paid your debt completely. You may have heard of sermon series that go through the words of Jesus on the cross. One of the last things that he said, John tells us, he records three simple words. Those words, if you know them, say them with me. It is finished. Now, in the English, we have three words. In the Greek, there's only one. And that word is tetelesta. Tetelesta, it can mean lots of things. It can mean completed like you finish a project. It can mean completed as if the work is finished. It can mean complete and full and done. We get that idea. But it can also mean paid in. In 
archaeological digs in the Holy Lands, they have our stories of them finding basically invoices, bills uh, of something that someone owed. And when that bill was paid, across that invoice in large, bold letters was Tetelesta. That's what Jesus said on the cross that day. He was saying that his work was done, that the Father's work was done, and that your debt was paid. Praise God to tell us, stop. Paid in full is what we are. If we're in Christ and we're in the death of Christ, he has paid for not just the world's sin, not just some random person out there, but your sin. He has paid for it. Now, I don't think we fully understand this. Sometimes we go, well, I become a Christian and think, oh, man, I've sinned so much. You understand that when you are in Christ, when you go into the waters of baptism, that his blood reaches not just to everything you have done, but to everything you will do. You are paid in full. Every debt you owe to God or ever will owe was paid on that cross. May we not forget, may we not forget the beautiful way in which Jesus finished his mission on earth. The only way into his death then is through baptism. Now, Romans chapter 3, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5 says this. Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him, what, how? By saying the sinner's prayer? By just trusting? No, we were buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united in a resurrection like his. Now this morning, I'm going to do a different type of invitation. Because I think, and I do it too, that sometimes we hear a person giving a talk at this table and we forget what a great price was paid. Or we hear a person preaching a sermon and inviting people to come to Christ and forgetting that Christ is still paying for us in full. So this morning is an invitation not just to people who don't know Christ, not just to people who aren't in Christ through baptism. Well, and you're still welcome to come. But this morning, the invitation is open for everyone. So what we're going to do is when you come forward, if you want to say thank you, for the price that has been paid for you. I want you to grab. We're going to have some threads. The teens are going to help me. And we've got some threads on this table and some threads on this table. And if you are thankful for the price that has been paid for you, I want you to come grab one of these strings. I want you to wrap it around the cross at some point and just tie it there. As a, you know, kind of like you do to remind yourself when you tie a finger, a string around your finger. To be reminded that it is finished with you. That God has paid for you. If you're in Christ, he has paid for you in full. And if you're ready to say thank you, if you're ready to just remember, since you can't even remember when, you've taken time to remember that price that was paid, I want you to come grab a string this morning as we sing.
Now, if you do need to know Christ, like if you've been trying to pay your debt one dollar at a time, doing all these good works, doing all this stuff, you need to know you can be free from that by putting Christ on in baptism. And I want to invite you, and if you, if you need to be baptized, or if you need our shepherds to pray with you, or just hug you and say, I'm hurting, and I'm, I'm really hurting in a way, I've been hurting, in a, and I need a comfort of a shepherd who loves me and who cares for me and is going to pray for me. And all I want you to do is come get your string and tie it, and then just come take a seat on any of these front rows, and one of our shepherds will come to greet you. That's what they pray about. That's what they want to do. That's their job. If you have a need this morning... I want to invite you, and please, oh, please, if you're not in Christ, if you have not buried with him into his death, then don't wait another minute to have your debt paid, because you can't stand in eternity based on your own good works. You can't stand. You've got to let him pay the price for you. So this morning, I want to invite everyone to come and remind you of two simple things before we close. That day... The morning of the cross, there were two other crosses, one on Jesus' right and one on Jesus' left. Both of them held criminals who got exactly what they deserved. They got their justice. One stood with his hands outstretched and said, If you're Jesus, rescue yourself and us. Pull us down. The other one said to him, What are you, what are you picking on him for? He didn't deserve this. We do. We deserve this. And then he looked at Jesus for mercy and he said, remember me today. Remember me today in your kingdom. And Jesus, in one of his final acts of godly mercy, said, today you'll be with me in paradise. This morning, you have the same choice. A, a, a convict's choice. Are you going to stand to the very end and say, I'm going to do it on my own. And nobody else pays my debt for me. Or are you going to look to the centerpiece of human history and say to him, have mercy. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And he will. You can repent of sin. You can put him on in Christ and be buried with him in his death. This morning, I ask you all to make this choice. But I ask you all to come. As together now, we stand and sing.